Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the European Talks, a podcast from the European Policy Center, a Belgrade-based independent think tank. My name is Sena Maric and I will be your host today. In this episode, we will focus on the effects of the EU conditionality policy, on the inputs think tanks and academia can bring into the policy debates, and on how is it to be a woman in academia. To discuss these topics, I'm joined by Dr. Natasha Wunsch, postdoctoral researcher at the European Politics Research Group at the ETH Zurich. Natasha, it's a great pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. So uh, you've been uh, throughout your uh, academic and uh, professional career uh, very much dealing with the civil society empowerment in the Western Balkans with the democratic backsliding with state capture phenomena. So uh, we're very happy to be able to talk to you about this uh, with you today. Um, So the Western Balkans seems to be stuck in their uh, EU aspirations to become EU members, our states in the region. On the one side, uh, there's this uh, formal um, compliance with you, which is growing, which uh, is uh, showing a positive tendency. But at the same time, in terms of democratic performance and uh, rule of law, the countries are either stagnating or backsliding. At the same time, we are also witnesses that uh, the, the democratic erosion is also happening at the EU level, that some EU member states are as well uh, uh, performing badly in that sense. Um, How do you see these two processes? Uh, Is it just a coincidence that they are happening in parallel? Um, Can you first explain, in your view, how do you uh, see the Western Balkans' uh, stagnation? Why is it happening? And can you maybe link it to what's been happening now in uh, some countries which have been candidate countries maybe some 15 years ago? Yeah, so thank you. I think indeed what we see is uh, basically parallel processes of democratic backsliding post-accession but also um, pre-accession and the the empirical manifestations of these processes are relatively similar. So we generally have a democratically elected executive that then proceeds to gradually dismantle domestic checks and balances, attack independent media, NGOs, um, and, uh, and gradually extend its powers such that the democratic character, or at least the democratic quality of the state, are um, severely undermined. So I think in terms of how democratic backsliding occurs, the, um, the dynamic is very similar. Now, where um, there is a difference is, of course, the, the relative weight of the EU in these processes. Uh, when it comes to post-accession backsliding, in a sense, some degree of post-accession erosion was expected, was feared, um, and therefore is um, somewhat less surprising. I do think the fact that we see similar trends now already in the pre-accession case in the Western Balkan countries is particularly problematic because it signals that EU leverage and EU conditionality no longer unfold um, this this transformative power that we ascribed um, to it uh, in the the early 2000s when it comes to Central and Eastern Europe. So in that sense, I think um, theoretically uh, the the pre-accession backsliding is the the more puzzling and possibly also the more worrying when it comes to um, the sustainability of the EU's influence. In your opinion, why is the EU losing its transformative leverage in the Western Balkans? So I had the opportunity today, upon the invitation of CEF, to speak about a recent um, co-authored publication with um, Solveig Richter, where we looked precisely at um, what you described initially, what we what we call a decoupling. So this formal compliance uh, is improving. The um, formal compliance with accession criteria, but we have a backsliding um, when it comes to liberal democracy. And here what we identify as the central um, obstacle to um, to greater compliance, to greater democratization in the region is state capture. And, uh, and we argue that conditionality actually is not only just over 
not only not able to overcome the state capture in the region, but is actually contributing to entrenching um, informal networks that uh, that contribute to state capture. And and this is obviously particularly worrying because it's an unintentional impact uh, of conditionality, and it shows that there can be a pathological effect um, of Europeanization when um, condition conditionality is employed in ways that actually strengthen illiberal leaders um, rather than contribute to overturning them. So this is an important point to stop. Uh, so you're saying that the EU conditionality has not intentionally brought to this uh, outcome, but uh, it unintentionally contributed. That's maybe important to clarify. Yes, so we, we, we really frame that in terms of um, a research um, track that has uh, looked at pathological impact of um, Europeanization. Of course, the um, EU conditionality um, or the, the commission that is applying conditionality does not intend to, um, to strengthen state capture. And we also do not claim that um, it, it is at the core, at the core uh, of state capture that, that is actually causing the state capture. However, what we do say is that um, by providing money to uphold um, informal networks and also by um, allowing ruling elites to sidestep domestic deliberation and um, to kind of push through a legislative program with little parliamentary participation by marginalizing civil society actors and also by um, endorsing uh, on the part of the EU liberal leaders by signaling this um, constant advancement towards the goal of EU accession, EU conditionality is involuntarily entrenching these phenomena and um, contributing to the, um, to the rather worrying tendencies that we see across the region. And could you give us some concrete example to confirm this argument? So, for instance, the um, Commission's annual progress reports, now called country reports, um, are supposed to pinpoint which are the areas in which um, these countries are, are most struggling. And while we do see the term state capture mentioned. The overall tone of these reports um, still st strikes, strikes very much a balance between um, criticism and um, an endorsement. And I think beyond the, the, um, the reports themselves, what is problematic is um, political leaders from EU member states and from EU institutions that actively um, promote and support um, local leaders. So in our, in our paper, we use the case study of Serbia. And there um, we show that Angela Merkel, for instance, just weeks before a rather critical um, country report was published on Serbia, praised the um, comprehensive efforts in the rule of law um, that, um, that Alexander Vucic uh, implemented. And uh, another example would be um, in the same year, I believe 2016, uh, Donald Tusk coming to Serbia and um, calling uh, Alexander Vucic a soulmate, uh, that he was uh, very much on track uh, when it comes to EU accession. And of course, these political statements weigh much more than the technical details that are, um, that are more um, specific and maybe also more critical in, in the country report. Indeed, these political messages do receive greater attention than what it is still unfortunately considered as technical aspects of the EU accession. So what do you see as the way forward? How can the EU conditionality be more effective? So I think there are, there are two um, kind of practical conclusions that we draw at the end of our paper, that on the one hand, um, the EU would need to ensure more parliamentary involvement um, in the region in legislative processes. A lot of new laws are being adopted um, in the context of the EU accession process. Um, and generally, these laws are kind of pushed through parliament with very little um, domestic deliberation. So this we really see as key, um, not just for the quality of legislation, but also for the sustainability of changes adopted. Because if these changes are pushed through from the top, then they're, of course, just as easily reversed upon accession when EU leverage drops away. The second um, practical conclusion we draw is the involvement of civil society. And here you pointed out that I um, conducted some research on this um, a few years ago. 
to assess to what extent civil society actors would be able to be empowered in the context of um, EU accession negotiations. And I think there is a role to be played for the Commission in reaching out more explicitly, in demanding more explicitly also the involvement of NGOs um, and of, of their um, expertise in uh, such leg legislative and consultative processes. Yeah, but unlike in uh, the CE enlargement when, uh, and even creation case, when uh, the involvement of civil society was not that uh, strong and uh, intense as in uh, the Western Balkans case, you could, of course, uh, uh, have many critics on uh, uh, and always pledge for more involvement. We still are on much more advanced level of uh, involvement into policy making and deliberative processes compared to uh, other enlargements. But what have you noticed? What has been flawed so far in, in, in this? So I would certainly agree that there have been uh, many more mechanisms, that there's been a more deliberate um, attempt both from the, from the side of the EU and from the side of um, domestic NGOs to become involved in these processes. Also, um, I, I would see a learning process between the Croatian example where mobilization happened relatively late and then Serbia and Montenegro that were able to establish um, formats of the, the convent, the monitoring coalitions very early on in the, um, in the negotiations. So I think when it comes to formal terms and preparedness on the part of um, civil society organizations, there is clearly um, progress compared to um, Central and Eastern Europe where the process was um, more between the governments on a bilateral level between governments and, um, and the European Commission. Um, however, one of the issues that I see is that these, um, th this formal empowerment and these procedures that have been created does not actually translate into substantive empowerment, um, so that an actual impact on, on policy initiatives, very much because the pressure that the EU exerts upon candidate states now to show that they are opening up, that they're holding these consultations, leads to um, what in a different article with um, Adam Fagan I've called a facade, we've called facade institutionalization. So yes, you do have these formats, but it is very much done as a facade, so to please the Commission, to be able to point to, um, to certain concrete steps that have been taken, but actually with no real intention behind to take um, critical civil society input on board. Uh, lately, wherever we participated on uh, each and uh, every uh, discussion, there has been calls for greater dialogue, for greater discussion, for more uh, critical uh, opinion and so on. Um, whether we talk about uh, the reform of the EU, whether we talk about uh, how to make our EU accession process uh, more uh, genuine and uh, more um, effective. Um, what role do you see for think tanks and academia in that sense, talking about the societal dialogue in general, and then in terms of uh, these important uh, discussions such as uh, one country's uh, aspiration to join the EU member? And can you see any difference in uh, the position uh, the academia and think tank have in the society here in the Western Balkans compared to the Western European countries where you have lived in? So I would, um, first of all, differentiate between um, academia and think tanks. So I think academia um, is more focused, of course, on, say, more theoretical, more, um, more long-term, empirically grounded um, uh, research, but that is uh, less directly applicable. And I think there is, um, there's an important role for this. I mean, 
as, as, a, as a basis then for, for future um, practical work. And I would see think tanks role actually in translating these findings from academic work um, that has kind of this larger time span into really concrete practical um, applications, recommendations, um, inputs into policy processes. And I think in general, um, this is a role that think tanks fulfill largely fulfill, I would say, um, in Western Europe, where their value is also recognized um, by administrations as being kind of a, a sparring partner or um, a critical external voice that can provide some input in a, in a constructive manner. And so what I, um, what I have seen over the course of my research in, in Eastern Europe, or say specific, specifically in the Western Balkans, is that the, these roles, the differentiation between academia, sorry, between think tanks and um, government officials is much more antagonistic from both sides. So I think from the part of um, the government, there's very much the perception that um, think tanks or so society actors are basically slowing down the process, um, criticizing often in an unfounded manner, um, uh, and, uh, and and basically not really playing a, um, a helpful role. Whereas from the civil society side, and um, and I say this is uh, someone who's also been involved in, in trainings for think tanks from the region, the tone is often, I find, too aggressive in the sense that, um, of course, there are severe shortcomings um, with the governments, but if the aim is to have an uptake of civil society research and civil society findings into um, into government initiatives, then at least the framing needs to be um, one of kind of kind of a constructive, supportive role. I, I do see, of course, that there is very little space for um, for this kind of constructive interaction. But I think, um, for instance, the example of Montenegro very clearly shows how detrimental it can be to um, to state civil society interactions when when these hostile um, roles become entrenched and when you basically um, have two completely separate spheres that uh, feel that the respective other side is um, is strongly yeah against uh, against one's own position and, and uh, keeping this away so I think this is something that a number of external um, donors have tried to change over time but something that will also of course depend on the quality of the government per se improving and their openness to to such processes just as much as the um, quality and the framing of civil society input would need to be um, matched to to government openness and government responsiveness to their input. Yes, indeed. Uh, and for the very end, uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the women in academia. What's your opinion on their position nowadays? Uh, according to all research available, uh, women are much less represented uh, in the academic world compared to men. Um, could you maybe share your thoughts and opinion based on your personal and professional trajectory? So my own trajectory has been very much a back and forth between um, academia and, uh, and think tank work. And um, I've always felt that academia gives a degree of freedom that uh, a lot of um, kind of more traditional uh, time-bound um, professions do not have. At the same time, the flexibility um, and the dedication that academia requires are often for women um, uh, pose a structural ob obstacle to them making the choice for academia. And I see this now um, as I myself transition from um, postdoc to, uh, to a tenure track position, that a lot of times these, um, these strategic um, kind of milestones or, or um, transition points coincide with moments when typically women would found a family. And so mm -hmm. these are professional moments in the professional career that require a lot of time investment, just as the founding of a family requires a lot of um, time investment in the personal sphere. And so I think this is something that 
really act as a main deterrent to women to pursue academic careers because you need to maintain this flexibility for a long time. You need to um, maintain a high level of, um, of productivity, of, of motivation, of um, motivation actually in the absence of a concrete career perspective. So I, I, in, in that sense, we can maybe even draw um, a parallel to, uh, to the accession process for, um, for candidate countries in the sense that you have a goal um, uh, you know, in view that is eventual membership, be it of the academy or, or, or of the EU, but the process along the way is appears very arbitrary. And um, I think also in both cases, it is not certain that you will achieve the goal. So I think that that is where it becomes um, hard for both women and uh, candidate countries to, to maintain motivation, to maintain engagement and um, pursue this road uh, despite these odds. You see, here in Serbia, I think uh, many, when you say uh, you work in academia, would think of a very certain job, a very um, um, a nice and not stressful job for women, just uh, on the contrary to what you have just uh, said. So uh, probably the patterns of uh, getting into academia in the Serbian context, at least until recently, and uh, in the European and Western ones are uh, quietly differ. Well, academia, I would, I would think everywhere is, is highly competitive until you get into a stable position because, of course, you can stick around and, and um, go from one uh, time-limited contract to, to another for quite a while. Um, but even then, uh, in academia, you can easily get to a point where there is no way forward and where you actually need to leave um, this world. And if that happens, of course, late and at a point where um, you're, you're not settled necessarily um, personally, then that comes as, as a huge disappointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily aware that the Serbian system is different, but um, maybe that perception that it's an, an, an easy and relaxed job is once you have achieved tenure, mm-hmm. it's of course a secure job. Even then I would argue that demands are quite high in terms of um, productivity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you pointed out how competitive the academic sector is. How do you explain the proliferation of PhD titles all over the world? Did the global economic crisis uh, play any role? Or the opportunities in academia have diversified in the meantime? I mean, I think I think perhaps um, there, there has been a, a bit of an effect. We've seen that in terms of numbers with the, um, with the economic crisis, that more people have decided to remain in education as opposed to seeking a job simply because the prospects for a job were lower. Um, I also don't consider that necessarily everybody who engages in a PhD is then seeking to pursue an academic career. So there are certain um, systems, I'm thinking, for instance, of Germany, where the simple fact of having a nice uh, you know, title in front of your name opens other professional possibilities outside of uh, the university and higher education realm that can be better paid or more, more rewarding, and that would explain why more people are seeking to pursue that path. Hey, Natasha, thank you very much. This was very insightful. Thank you to you.